what's um what I found interesting as a, as a family, especially as a couple, is we were chasing, like you know, you chase the miracle cure, and then there's a realization that, that it's not there. And I think for us, it either could have made us stop what we were doing in terms of trying to build the, the community, or actually motivate us even more. And, and in our, our case, we realized we we wanted to leave a legacy, you know, in Emily's memory. So it really motivated us to make sure that. We're going to go and find these treatments. They must exist. We must be able to find people who'd want to develop them. That's what we spent the last few years doing, working with industry and actually getting involved in these studies. I think our experience has shown that you can make a difference. You have to work very collaboratively with everyone on that journey. And, you know, in a personal sense, it was tragic that we couldn't do anything to save Emily, but I think it's testament to through what we've been doing in the community and now we're we're seeing so many advancements in Taysacks and Sandhoff and, and the treatment options that are being worked on. That was Daniel Louis, the co-founder of the Cure in Action for Taysacks Foundation, which he founded after his daughter Emily was diagnosed in 2011 with the rare and terminal disease Taysacks. Dan is also the head of business development and a patient advocacy specialist here at Pulse Info Frame. He joined us for this episode with his wife and Katz Foundation co-founder, Patricia Louis. Hello and welcome to Real Talk, Real World Data, the Pulse Info Frame podcast highlighting the incredible potential of registries, natural history studies, and other real world data. I am your host, Joshua Henderson, and on this podcast, we meet with patients and patient advocates, industry, and researchers to discuss their unique perspectives on the value, the challenges, and the impact of real-world data. Let's jump right in. Dan and Patricia, it's wonderful to have you both on Real Talk, Real World Data. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you for having us. Yeah, so That's first, I'd, I'd love to have you both just share uh, a little bit about your journey in, in the rare disease space and, and where that's taken you, and of course, uh, to hear about Amélie. Uh, it's, it's a very common journey, I think, to a lot of um, small organizations. Um, our daughter, Amelie, was diagnosed with Tay-Sachs in 2011 um, when she was about 16 or 17 months old. We had no idea what Tay-Sachs was. In fact, I remember feeling really shocked that such diseases existed and how it was progressive and how it just sort of came about. We were really, really shocked about it. Um, and at the time, there was really no support anywhere in Europe about the diseases, no information. Uh, we felt really lonely and isolated um, and we felt a little bit lost, to be honest, on how were we going to move forward as a family and look after our child um, with such a tragic diagnosis, knowing that she was just going to get worse. Um, and that there was no treatments available and that she had a very um, short life expectancy. Um, so that was um, that was really it at the time. It was a really bleak scenario for us as, as new parents because Amelie is our oldest child. 
and we felt that maybe we could change that and so we went to seek answers for the disease and look for whatever was out there in terms of scientists and um, researchers looking into into Tay-Sachs um, and we took it from there really we had a little bit of support from some people in the community that wanted to do the same. I, th I think the the real thing for us as a family was that feeling of isolation you kind of get this horrific diagnosis in the case of Tay-Sachs it's neurodegenerative so you, your child in our case, Amelie, this beautifully smiling girl was sitting on our lap. We're being told she's going to end up in a wheelchair, being fed by a tube with uncontrollable seizures. And you can't imagine as a family getting there. And then you walk out the hospital and you feel so isolated. They told you never going to meet another family. And I think one of the real drivers for us was to stop other people going through that experience. If we, Even if we couldn't find treatments, if we could build this community to bring people together, then they would have someone else they can lean on for advice and support. And, and I think that's one of the, the things we worked really hard at to, to put in place that people can feel they're part of this community then they get that level of support that sadly we didn't get in those early few years. And it, it, if, you, if you take us back to that year, I think it was 2011, when you received your diagnosis in, in March and really it, it within three months you had started um your your foundation to support the the Tay-Sachs community uh, you know you talked a little bit about the um the driving kind of motivations around connecting with others in the community and i know that the that cats uh both provides support services but also you mentioned looking at research and talking to scientists and and researchers and and who was looking at this this disease and this space. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that thought process of hey, we're forming this organization, we want to bring together the, the community, but really having research be a a kind of priority within the organization because not not all patient advocacy groups patient organizations do have a focus on on research um i don't know if it was a priority i think it it felt obviously when you're told that your child is going to die the first thing you want to look is for a cure um and i think we were really naive at the time thinking there will be one because I think none of us had an experience with, thankfully, with, with family members or someone really close to us um, that had gone through an incurable disease. So when you're sitting in that moment of diagnosis, you're thinking there must be something. And when we were told that there wasn't something, we, I don't think we were quite ready to accept it for the, at least for the, you know, the, the first few months. Um, I, we also had a very different journey to other parents. So Amelie was diagnosed very quickly um, within, I would say, a month that we've noticed so that she had um, her, her symptoms and she deteriorated really quickly because she was sick. So we were really in that sort of shock phase where we didn't have a child that was progressively very ill for a year or two like other parents had. We had an apparently kind of healthy child in front of us. 
So I think that to me was my first motivation. And I think all parents have that at first, which is how are we going to cure our child? But very quickly, we did realize that the disease was progressing and where research was at the time was going to take years um, and that it wouldn't be in time for Amelie. So when we actually registered the Cats Foundation, we knew that this was not going to be something that would impact Amelie's life in any way, that she would already be uh, very ill by then to have any sort of treatment. Um, but as as we left hospital that day when we were got our diagnosis, we were told we would never meet anybody else with the same disease as Amelie. And I think that was also something, at least for me, that really still is in the back of my mind and something that we thought, that's not possible, there will be other people. And there were, and we met them. And those people were also looking for other families because it's very difficult to now speak to your friends that have children the same age who are not going through any of this, uh, who are not going to have to make certain decisions like we had to do. Um, and so it was a little bit of both, I think. I think in the beginning, at least me personally, I was really focused on finding research. Um, and I just emailed everyone, you know, left, right and center. And I got in touch with one of the really good charities in the US and they gave me the contact of a researcher in Cambridge. Um, and that's how kind of started our contact with, with researchers. Uh, but slowly I started realizing you know, on a personal level that actually what we needed as a family was to have others going through the same. Um, and I think all families do realize that after the first few months, they realize they need that support. Um, and those, which is really peer to peer, isn't it? And you don't go to find it anywhere else, not with health professionals, not with other members of your family. You need those people that are going through the same situation really. What's um, what I found interesting as a, as a family, especially as a couple, is we were chasing, like you know, you chased a miracle cure, and then there's a realization that that it's not there. And I think for us, it either could have made us stop what we were doing in terms of trying to build the the community, or actually motivate us even more. And, and in our our case, we realized we we wanted to leave a legacy, you know, in Emily's memory. So it really motivated us to make sure that. We're going to go and find these treatments. They must exist. We must be able to find people who'd want to develop them. That's what we spent the last few years doing, working with industry and actually getting involved in these studies. And I think our experience has shown that you can make a difference. You have to work very collaboratively with everyone on that journey. And, you know, in a personal sense, it was tragic that we couldn't do anything to save Emily, but I think it's testament to for what we've been doing in the community. And now we're we're seeing so many advancements in TASACs and Sandhoff and, and the treatment options that are being worked on. So I know that early on um, in after starting CATS that um, you also were involved in establishing a, a European-wide uh, consortium and collaboration um, in TASACs and that you also started a registry. Can you talk about the thought process behind, you know, why why investing, you know, the the foundation's resources in those efforts um, around research? For the on the kind of the registry and the consortium, 
the idea came to us, Patricia and I were, were sitting there one night talking about how few patients there were. You know, we, we're only, we're sitting in with kind of a UK-centric hat on. And then we realised, you know, there must be people out in Europe. And we knew their workers had been in touch with them. And we realised that if we could build this wider community in different countries, it would give us patient numbers. And if you get patient numbers, you, you start to become attractive to industry-developed treatments. And then on that kind of developed on our realisation that if we could then develop a registry, we could be in a position that we would have, you know, good quality data that could drive forward how any treatment could be um, be produced. You know, it gives them a, a, some form of natural history data. It can help on clinical trial design. It can give some insights onto what they should be measuring within any clinical study. And that's where that came from. And we did a lot of work on finding, you know, the right platform to use, what data to collect, building data dictionaries to make sure we're collecting everything that would be relevant for any clinical study. And on the back of that, that has enabled us to grow not just CATS, but the European Consortium and help set up charities throughout Europe. Because the more patient numbers there are, the more industry are going to be interested, the more chances that things are actually going to get developed. And one of our kind of remits for charities to support people, but also to kind of drive forward treatments. And this this has been a vital piece of that kind of project. And it's been a lot of hard work to get to where we are now, having multiple um, treatment options being developed. But we honestly believe that uh, that groundwork we did at developing the registry and setting up the, the European Consortium has been instrumental in that in that kind of project. So certainly one of the, the in, in talking to a number of advocacy groups, the the notion of a registry as a as a way of inviting pharma into the conversation and, and trying to incentivize them by sharing data and collaborating together around real world data. You know, any any recommendations or thoughts you have around other advocacy groups who want to pursue that approach you know how do how do you speak pharma uh, i think that one of the things that i i kind of learned over the years is just to have confidence that and the confidence of what you're doing is right and it's going to make a difference and I've, i'm close to many patient groups in different disease areas who sometimes lack that final confidence just to launch something the key here is that if you can establish some form of registry, some form of data collection, you can actually make a difference to your community because you can bring an industry. An industry really needs, needs a reason why they, they should be investing their time and money in your disease area. That's the sad thing about it. That's what you need to kind of pitch your disease to people to get them attracted in. And one way of doing that is with data and also to show patient numbers. If you can show that there are enough people out there who could benefit from a treatment, then there's a much higher chance that, that um, industry will want to get involved in, you know, in your area. And any thoughts, you know, there are, there are a number of groups that pursue this approach of building registries. Any, both in your experience, um, at CATS and and maybe some of the conversations you had as you were first embarking on on that journey of building a registry, but also in, you know, with your hat at Pulse, working with a number of patient groups, you know, what what are some of the challenges that um, that leaders 
of these rare disease communities maybe aren't aren't always thinking about as they're you know starting on their registry journeys i think i mean patricia can also give a bit of an insight on this one it's about people realizing why it's being done so you need to ensure one you can get people to contribute information to a registry but then keep them engaged and a lot of work that we do is on the educational side not just on the registry but on the disease as well and disease progression and by giving back to people and educating them you empower them so um i think that's vital that you're not just going to go around and collect information on a disease store on a platform and then not share back, not not um, produce publications, give present, give post to, uh, presentations, go to conferences. You have to give back to people so they see why they're, they're being actively involved in this sort of project. And sometimes I think that's missed. And, and um, from our experience, I don't know, Patricia, you want to, to say something about the way that we've, we're always bringing in our, our kind of community to share what we do. Uh, I completely agree. I think that people need to understand what the registry is and what it is for. Um, and I think with rare diseases, there's a huge, let's call it opportunity here because the knowledge about each disease is, is, is so limited. So that is really what my first thought registry was, we are finally going to be able to look at different patients and see a different progression and see um, the different um, mutations that they have on their genes, whatever it is. And there's actually so much different information that you get from the registries that has helped us understand uh, the disease that we really are the experts on. Um, and I think the community needs to be educated and feel that they're part of it rather than just be um, sort of asked for to, to fill in a very long, uh, um, sort of survey uh, and and really to go through obviously I understand uh, not a very sometimes pleasant um, kind of thing to do to have to write what your child can do and can't do and when when did this all happen so it's a bit of an emotional thing sometimes as well to do um, but it can really help the now and the future and I think that's something we've really been um, trying to put across the community that this is for the community um, and it could be for their own child if if possible uh, and to better understand the diseases if i always think as i think with everything that we've done at cats that perhaps if this had been done a decade before amelie was diagnosed we would have been in a different position when you know when she was diagnosed so um as a community I think with cats and a lot of, of the other diseases that I've been involved with, uh, people are really helpful and they are really, really close communities and they want to help and they want to make sure that others are not going to go through this same situation. Um, and so it's about educating, giving back to the community and appealing to that side and making them understand that actually their data or their child's data has huge value. Um, in furthering that research. Well, it is a beautiful legacy for Amelie that, that you continue to create as champions for the, the Tay-Sachs community. And Dan, thank you for your, sharing your experience with Pulse and, and the many groups we work with. It's, you know, it's an honor to have you 
um, be a part of our team and and to get to work alongside and of course to learn from you as well. Thank you, Joshua. No, like we, we're always like to share our story and our experiences. And one thing that I've kind of learned over the years in the rare disease community on the advocacy side is that everyone is so collaborative and willing to work together and share experiences that we would never as a charity got to where we got to with cats without the help from groups such as Neiman Pick UK and the Gosha Association of the UK, the NPS Society, all of these guys have been instrumental in giving ad advice and guidance to us. And then in that term, we've been able to then share our experiences to help other groups accelerate forward. And I think that is a testament, not just to obviously our taste apps and sound of communities, a testament to the rare disease community that we all want to help each other drive forward what we're doing. Awesome. Great. Well, anything, anything else um, from either of you that, that, you know, you wish, you wish we had, uh, I had asked and, and didn't, I know you, Patricia, you, you've got to um, run in a minute. So I tried to, tried to keep us and tight on time, but anything else you guys can think of? Um, I, I don't think so. Um, I think you've gone through pretty much everything. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, good. Yeah, no, this was, was great. great. This was really, really good. I, again, really appreciate you sharing your story. Of course, Dan, thanks for, thanks for arranging this. And, um, I love love getting to know the the many hats that you wear and have worn. That was cool. Thanks, Joshua. That was good fun. Enjoyed it. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah. Mm -hmm.